The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Mr. Chairman, Dean James, and others of you who have had anything to do with making this occasion possible, I do deeply appreciate this opportunity of being here with you to discuss this obviously popular subject today. I have with me here some magazines, which all of you perhaps have seen, maybe not. First, of course, is this one by Time. Is God dead? Time has never had, it says, a cover in which there were not some pictorial presentation. This was a glaring, striking question asked, Is God dead? Now, naturally, the religious magazines like the Christian Century, Liberal, Christianity Today, Conservative, they've had many articles on the subject. Even a magazine such as United States News and World Report, which ordinarily deals with homo economicus rather than with homo religiosus, even they have found it wise to have two articles are the churches in trouble? And now, a new one, in which they have the picture of Billy Graham, God is not dead. Now, you see, therefore, in Newsweek and a magazine like the Greater Philadelphia, as well as many others, have discussed the subject and are still discussing it. It has taken great, it has taken the public eye Everybody seems at the present time to be interested in it. It seems to be a sensational subject. It's very striking, maybe seemingly notoriety-seeking by the sound of it to say that God is dead in a country that is as religious as ours and that believes supposedly in God. But I'm not thinking of the so-called God as dead is dead theologians as people that are seeking notoriety. I'm not speaking of them as some people do, the God is dead boys. I'm speaking of them seriously as profound Christian theologians, young to be sure in years, well informed, thoroughly informed with all that has been said in modern theology by such outstanding theologians as Paul Tillich, Rudolf Bultmann, Karl Barth, Reinhold, and Richard Niebuhr, Nels Ferre, and others as great as they. Now, therefore, the question that we want to ask for ourselves is, first of all, who are they, these God-is-dead theologians, briefly? The answer is readily given. They are, in the first place, Dr. Thomas J. Altitzer of Emory University, Dr. William Hamilton of Colgate, Rochester, and Dr. Paul Van Buren of Temple University. Each of them has recently written an article in the Christian Century on the, under the theme, How My Mind Has Changed. But each of them has also written 
a book or more than one book. Each of them is employed, engaged now in writing still more works. They are serious Christian theologians, and we shall treat them as such. Now, what do they mean is then our second question, and after we have sought to discover what they mean, then we must ask next what is said with respect to them by those who do not agree with them, and notably by Dr. Bennett, Dr. Bennett of Union Seminary in New York, who writes in Look in Defense of God. Now, we want to take up secondly, therefore, what is said in defense of the existence of God as over against those that deny his existence. And then finally, in the third place, we want to ask ourselves the question, shall we follow them? Do we think that they have a good case to make, intellectually, morally, or spiritually? Now then, the God-is-dead theologians are serious and responsible Christian theologians. They deny the existence of God. They deny also that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but they do not deny Jesus, nor do they deny, at least in one case, Van Buren's case, his resurrection. The first thing that naturally strikes you when you hear the word God is dead, you think of Friedrich Nietzsche, who said excitedly, God is dead, and who made that pronouncement with great glee and with great hatred, as he expressly said, of the humble Jesus of Nazareth. In his genealogy of morals, Nietzsche says that if there were a sign to be placed above the portals of heaven, it should be, hate also made this. In other words, it's the people who are the so-called followers of the meek and lowly Jesus who hate other people and who take the greatest delight in the prospect of going to heaven from which they can look down upon those that are in hell and look down upon them with great glee and joy because they are not there and that these people are not with them. Now Nietzsche says he hates that God and it is, of course, not true that the God-is-dead theologians are anything like Nietzsche. They are not haters. They are lovers of men. They are lovers of Jesus of Nazareth, and they want the love of our, their fellow men to spread abroad. And their interest in writing to the effect that God is dead is in the interest of having this idea that God or Christ is love and that universal love may prevail and reach out unto the ends of the earth, that that no longer be hindered from becoming effective. <clears throat> now there is a man named Bahamian who writes the book God Without, Wait Without Idols. He portrays for us the secular city. He is not himself a God-is-dead theologian, but he is certainly very sympathetic with them, and he points out that what they are after, the God-theologians, is what Dr. Bonhoeffer, a great theologian who died in the prison camps in Germany, a follower of Karl Barth, and then one who went beyond Barth, said that we must get used to the idea 
that what Christianity is all about is the transformation of secular life. We must no longer think of an other realm above, a spiritual realm, a heaven or a hell. We must get rid of those notions now and speak of the transformation, the improvement of the so-called secular realm. And so Harvey Cox writes, from Harvard writes a book about the secular city, and he celebrates its glory, and he invites us to its discipline, as he says. Well, now, what is the, what is the outline of that secular city? It is, of course, universal love of all men for all other men. And now he thinks, as the God, as that theologians think, that to hold to any of the traditional theologies, that is to think that there is a God that is transcendent to this world, and that that God, that transcendent God, revealed himself in finished fashion once for all in Jesus, who said that he was the Son of God, that that is harmful, that that holds back, as it were, the effectiveness. It's like a mountain stream, a mountain lake, that's of no help to anyone till it is opened up and the waters come down through the irrigation ditches and then fructifies the valley that is below. Now that God is not only like a mountain lake, this old God, this transcendent God, they say, he's not innocent, but he's harmful. Because, you see, he's prejudicial. He is said to have chosen some people and not chosen other, which makes these people that think they are chosen awfully cocky and makes them awfully wise in their own conceits and makes them think they are the elect and the others are the reprobate, they are going to heaven and others are going to hell. And such people are hard to live with, not only, but they hold up all good progressive realization of universal love to man on the basis of Vahanian's picture and of Cox's picture, there is a litany that was held in Chicago, one of the churches in Chicago, which runs something like this. O God who is pregnant without husband, O God who has no place to live, no home to call his own, as the snow falls gently here next to us at Andover Hall, in other words, if we want to talk about God, it's better we do not. But if we should want to talk about God, we want to identify him with every effort that is of an uplifting nature for the Negro race and for other down and out. We must be engaged in the cultural effort. We must undertake the cultural mandate, which is ours, which we have accepted for ourselves, Without the hypothesis of God, we'll be more successful if we do. Now, there have been, we are told by the people who hold to this view, not only in the recent past, but in the far distant past that have already helped us to clear the way for the building of this secular city. For instance, we are told that at the beginning, the Jews were told that God is their creator, or that my God is man's creator. 
Well, now that was a direct step toward the building of the secular city. Because, you see, that gave man freedom to deal with the ordinary things of life in an ordinary way. They were not sacred to the gods. They didn't have to sacrifice them to the gods. They were open for everybody to use at will. Then in the second place, there was the exodus from Egypt. That was the desacralization. There was the, they were being told in Sinai, for instance, that they must not worship other gods. They must not worship any known god, any god that can be known by this figure or by that figure. You must make no images of God. Well, of course, historic Christianity, they say, has made images of God. It has made images in that it has said, this is what God is like, and this is what he did in Palestine, and he died and he rose again, and you must believe that. And if you don't believe that, you are not saved. And you must send out missionaries to tell people about that Christ who came once for all to sacrifice himself on the cross, who died for sinners, that the wrath of God that was upon them because of their sins, he might take it and bear it for them and finish it, who said, it is finished on the cross. Now that is idolatry. And so we must, we are told by Vahanian, we must, be truly iconoclastic. Now, to be iconoclastic sounds as though you're only negative, but they do not want to be just negative. Dr. Altitzer writes an article on negative construction. That is, he wants to break down the old house right down to the ground and be sure there isn't anything left of it and that there is not a stone even underground that might interfere with the new skyscraper that is about to be built. Now, that is negative, all right, but it is negative for a clear-cut, positive purpose that man might be made free and that other men might also be free. Now, we know that Jesus of Nazareth, according to the God is dead theologians, was perhaps the first God is dead theologian. He at least put it into practice. He said that God died in him. The idea of the incarnation, that whatever is up there beyond is no longer up there, but became one with this world. And one of them says that the words that Jesus spoke on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, means not what the churches have meant by it, that the Father had forsaken him in order that he might receive, because he was their substitute, those for whom he died, but that God himself, the whole God, went completely under into death and died not once for all. He never lived, so how could he die? But if he had lived, he would have died. Now, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? is what Jesus said, and he meant, according to at least one of the God is dead theologians, that Jesus is the true man. He's the really the first man. He is our inspiration. Now, Dr. Van Buren, in speaking of Jesus, 
wants, however, not only his death, he wants also his resurrection from the dead. Now that may seem a bit surprising. You might think that he was denying the resurrection. It has become customary, of course, in many liberal circles to deny the resurrection of Jesus at least as a physical event, as a resuscitation of a biological organism that had died. Well, of course, Van Buren doesn't believe in the resurrection in the sense that the church has believed in the resurrection. That would be idolatry. But something happened, he says. This is literally what he says. Something happened. We do not know what it was that did happen, but before this they were fearful men, these disciples were, but after that they were fearless and brave and free. Jesus was the first free man, and somehow after his resurrection, or through the resurrection faith of his disciples, other men also became free it became contagious, this idea of freedom. Now, my friends, you will recognize, some of you here, no doubt, are taking up philosophy as well as courses in religion, and you know who Immanuel Kant was, and that he brought in himself quite exactly the same idea, which is to say, in other words, that these God-is-dead theologians are making Kant out to be a philosopher of Protestant belief, as many other theologians have said that he was, or if you will, that he is. In other words, Kant asserted, you recall, here was empiricism, here was rationalism. Science was impossible if reality was purely contingent, the way the empiricists said. Science was impossible if reality was a stark, identical principle of eternal changelessness, as the rationalist said, let's put them together and let's say there is an aspect to reality which is that of pure chance, pure contingency, but that there is also an aspect, a universal aspect, which springs from our own mind. It is not in an eternal realm as Plato thought. It is not even worse than Spinoza thought it was, but it is within us, we with our categories of the mind of causality impose these forms upon the raw stuff of experience, and that produces the field of science. Now the dead, God is dead theologians follow Kant in this respect. They have their support in Kant, and they have a right to claim this support as all other modern theologians of the liberal and of the neo-orthodox school of theology also have. And this brings out the point that I think is of basic importance. The God-is-dead theologians are not bringing in something radically different. They are only speaking forth more bluntly, if you will, are not disrespectful to them. They are speaking forth openly and plainly what has been assumed and said to be sure in the theological journals for many years. Kant himself says that this world is not a world in which God reveals himself. 
He made science do without God already these many years. And then he of the moral universe, of which he also spoke, he said that there is a moral law which every one of us must obey. We are free to obey this law or to disobey it, but we feel that we must follow the good and shun the evil. Now he spoke of that as the categorical imperative, as the moral law. But he knew very well that it was not a law that God had given him, but it was a law that he himself had projected. And then that God of whom he spake as giving that law is, is himself a projection of the autonomous self-consciousness, the moral self-consciousness, which, according to Kant, is the source of all predication. Now that, my friends, is the basis of all modern theology, and that is the basis of the God is dead theology. And therefore, in this respect, they are in very good company. They are in the company of Schleiermacher and Ritchell, the great modernist theologians. They are in the company of Reinhold Niebuhr, of Paul Tillich, of Rich, Richard Niebuhr, of Rudolf Bultmann, and of Karl Barth, and of Emil Brunner. With, without one exception, these men assume they do never undertake to prove, but they simply assume that man is autonomous, that he is free of the law of God in the scientific field and in the moral sphere. And they also assume that the God of which men must speak must first be thrown up, projected before he can come down with his revelation to us. Now I think it is all important to see to be fair to the God-is-dead theologians. You see, the excitement of the magazines is certainly thoroughly misleading. In the first place, Time, for instance, has a great number of quotations, so does Newsweek, so do every, does everyone else. But those are not enlightening, really. That gives you just a little biological information or biographical information about Tom, Dick, and Harry, good people, important people, but certainly there is no reason case in any of them that I have seen except the article in Look, in which Dr. John Bennett, the president of Union Seminary, gives a reasoned defense of God with which we must presently deal. Now then, they are but carrying out the principles of these modern theologians, as they claim, more consistently. Just look at Rudolf Bultmann, whose famous program of demythologization is well known even to all of us who do not maybe read too much theology otherwise. He says, according to the traditional position, there are three layers, heaven, earth, and hell. Now, certainly no modern man can believe that. Science has disproved that. And so, if we are to have the gospel, we must demythologize the gospel to make it acceptable, intelligible to the modern man and to meet his needs today, the secular man who knows that science is right in what it says about this world, that moral, moral principles that man has of himself are the source of what men should say about the moral universe. 
and that nobody can say anything more than that about God. Now, therefore, there isn't any reason for thinking why the God is dead theologian should not be acceptable by the God, by those people who believe in God, namely the sort of God that Dr. John Bennett believes in, or these other modern theologians believe in. When Dr. Bennett believes in God and makes his defense of God, his sum, the sum of it all is this, that the God hypothesis explains more of the pieces of experience than any other hypothesis does. We explain more with God than we do without him. But he has exactly the same starting point from man himself as intelligible to himself as a moral individual, as a spiritual, and as a scientific consciousness. That is, for Dr. Bennett, as obvious as it is for the God is dead theologian. And that is true as of these other men of whom I have already spoken. So then all that Dr. Bennett has to offer is say, isn't it true that though you are right, that we have to start from experience and from sensation, and that Kant was right that all knowledge of the space-temporal world involves us in experiencing something, being able to test it. And so Dr. Van Buren works up his verification principle, which he borrows from logical analysis, and he takes the philosophy of history of Robert Collingwood, whose historical consciousness, as he says, requires him to say that nobody in the past can speak with authority. When Collingwood himself, in his book on what is history, deals with Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says that he is the Son of God, and when he says that he will come again on the clouds of heaven to judge the quick and the dead, and will visibly return, then he says that cannot possibly be true. Now, don't you see, this is exactly the point that makes it obvious that the quarrel of the God is dead theologians is not with Karl Barth, is not with Emil Brunner, is not with Paul Tillich, or with Rudolf Bultmann, with any of the recent great giants of modern theology, because they haven't believed that any more than he does. They don't have to say that their God is dead. Their God has been as dead as is their own God. It is the God of historic Christianity that they were out to kill. Now, I use that word because they use it, not to be blunt or to be disrespectful. I shall use it again. That is, I'm only meaning this, that the God they are opposed to is the God who says they are creatures, really creatures, and that they ought to behave as such and that they are really sinners, and that they are, because of this fact, under the wrath of God, and are bound for eternal damnation. That is not metaphysics, my friends. That is to accept the story of this life, of the history of the universe and of mankind, on the authority of Jesus Christ as he is portrayed in Scripture. Jesus said to the Pharisees that he was the Son of God. They said, you blaspheme. There's only one principle of God. How can you also be God? You're just a man. Now, 
regarded dead theologians are saying the same thing, that God cannot exist. And this is the thing that I would particularly call your attention to. We've grown accustomed to this sort of thing in modern philosophy. You can read Stott's philosophy and you can hear him say that he is a bit of ooze oozing out of ooze and oozing back into ooze. Now, I'm not making fun of Stott. He could have said water as well as ooze. The point I'm making is that according to his assertion, man is like a bit of a white cat on a bottomless and shoreless ocean, utterly his logic included, a bit of chance, a bit of flotsam and jetsam. And yet this man undertakes to make a universal negative statement about all past and about all future, what can and what cannot be. There cannot be such a thing as the judgment, as the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven to judge the quick and the dead. And now that already gets me into the last point on which I want to speak briefly to you is, shall we follow them? Well, of course I cannot follow them. I cannot possibly follow them if they crucify logic and if they crucify all the facts so that I can't find a one of them. In the first place, look what the man is on whom they build. I would ask Alpizer, or I would ask Van Gurren, or Hamilton, how do you identify yourself? You say Jesus Christ cannot say and make it stick that he is the Son of God and Son of Man. When he said, I know whereof I speak, I know whence I came and whither I go. And if you do not believe me and repent and will not come to me that ye may have life, then the wrath of God abides upon you. Now, I cannot but ask my friends who reject this because they think it's unscientific or because it's unphilosophical. I ask them first to show me then a foundation of their own on the way basis of which they can make science sensible and on the basis of which they can make morality mean something. They haven't done so, neither have any of the modern philosophers and theologians done so. The conscience position which says that science is a combination of pure contingency with the laws of logic imposed upon it by the mind of man itself means that the facts of the universe are utterly unfindable. No, how can you find a black cat in a dark December night in a cold den if you are blind and the cat isn't there? Well, I'm not ridiculing anybody. I'm trying to make my point that man must be identifying himself in the facts of the universe. You can't do it unless the Bible, what the Bible says, that man is the creature of God and that the laws of nature are what they are in their order, in their dependability, not upon some man who is himself the product of chance. The laws of nature are what they are in their order, in their dependability, not upon some man who is himself the product of chance, then the laws are also chance, and not upon a God of whom you know nothing by your own definition, because he is utterly beyond your understanding. 
The Bible says God has revealed himself in nature. He's manifest there, and everybody is made in the image of God, and everybody knows this fact to be true, that God with his moral law speaks to him, and that he is disobeying it, and that therefore, because he is out of harmony with God, he hates God, and that's why he doesn't want to see him and contact the reason for making himself believe that he does not exist. Now that's the Bible portrayal of the dead. God is dead theologian, not only as individuals. I'm not speaking of them as individuals, but of all mankind. And they, of course, have given a psychological explanation, which is the currently going one, historical evolution, biological evolution, cosmic evolution, and a Christ mystique built on the top of it. Well, my friends, I first must ask these gentlemen, will they please make plain to me who they are? I don't mean to be disrespectful to them personally, but what is their philosophy of man? Where is their freedom? They say they want a free man. Free from what? From the law of God, yes, but free positively what? They cannot answer you. They have a faceless man, a voiceless man, a man in a vacuum who cannot speak to his neighbor. The German poet Goethe expressed it well when he said, Sprechy sailor, so sprechy sailor nicht mehr. When the individual speaks, when he's an individual, he's an individual because he is individualized by pure irrationality over against pure abstract universal rationality. And if he gets so individual, he gets lost in pure contingency, pure non-being, and is swallowed up. Then if he goes back, then he gets swallowed up in abstract rationality, just as Plato's individual who has somehow dropped out of contact with that eternal, changeless being and is now somehow supposedly being brought into unity of absorption with that eternal being again. So the man that is at the basis of these gods is that theologian's position, but not only at the basis of their position, at the basis of the modern scientific, the modern philosophical, the modern theological position since Emmanuel comes, is a man who has to go off in both directions on two horses, going in opposite directions simultaneously, and he can't meet himself. Now, I say this in all seriousness, you see what the religious journals are saying, the Christian century is saying, that the great debate is on. A great debate is on. Well, there is no great debate by Dr. Bennett, who believes in God, and the God is dead theologians who do not believe in God. Why should they argue about a course? There is no point in it. And why shouldn't the God is dead theologians be accepted into the church of those who believe? The Presbyterian Church in the USA is making a new confession the Confession of 1967. Well, there isn't any more divinity of the traditional sort in that than is in the theology of the goddess death theologians. There is no reason why the goddess death theologians 
should not be accepted in full at face value. The only ones that must be exorcised is those I told they who believe as I believe in the historic Christian position as set forth, for instance, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Dr. Hendry, George Hendry of Princeton Seminary, himself has written a book on this Westminster Confession, and he said it is a confession in which man has no freedom. Well, he wants the freedom, he says, that Kant has given us. Well, now let these men then show us how they are free with the freedom wherewith Kant has set them free. As for me, I will be free with the freedom with which Christ has set me free. Now, this is to me the issue. The great debate is there. It's always been there. Since the time that men, man at the beginning of history listened to Satan and would not be a creature, but would be as God, and he would not, he would think, therefore, of all reality as being contingent, so that God himself didn't know what would happen to him if he ate of the forbidden fruit. It is that economy already explicit in the Greek thinkers, much more obviously explicit in the modern activistic thinkers following Kant. And so there's no need of going back to any of the Greeks or to any other. The only thing for us to do is to say, Nay, my friend, we are sorry for you. We believe you are good men. We believe that you want to be Christian men. But you certainly are self-deceived men. And we wish that God would open your eyes, that by his Holy Spirit, he, the Father, would quicken you, and he, the Son, might quicken you, and the Holy Spirit might regenerate you. We are not better than are you. We have no pretense to offer. We're not smarter. We're not better philosophers. We're not logically clear thinkers. But we have been saved by grace, and that grace will save the world, will solve the race problem. Nothing else will, finally. And at last. Now, my friends, I want to give you time to speak and to react and to tell me what you want. I think that the sum and substance of it is this. I have tried to make plain to you who these God is dead theologians are. They are good. They are able men. They want to be Christians. They want to follow Jesus, even the resurrection. But the resurrection according to Van Buren. When you speak of that, you're speaking of a language of eschatology in another realm, which is the equivalent of Kant's numinal realm. And how can you make what's anything that's up there effective in this realm? So you see, he cannot even be consistent with himself. I'm not interested in making out that these are bad men. I'm not interested in making out that anybody is a bad man. We are after the issues of life and of death for this life and the life to come. And I submit to my you, my friend, if you are tempted to believe this modern approach, that then you must face the responsibility of making sure that you know there cannot be a judgment. The Bible says there is. Jesus said there is. 
and that he will condemn you unless you now humble yourself before him and prostrate yourself at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now may God give all of us that grace. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for the God of destiny, Lord, that they too with me, with those that believe in Jesus Christ, not by virtue of wisdom, but by the grace of the Spirit alone, that they might rejoice with us in eternal glory, and then recognize the fact that the prophet Jeremiah was right when he said, but our God is the true God and the living God, and all the earth before him shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Well, I thank you very kindly for your patience.